Welcome to the Braxton Ranch Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Gidding. Today on Campfire Stories, The Kings of Braxton, Born Unto Trouble. It's a novel I wrote many years ago. So, without further ado, let's head over to the campfire and make ourselves comfortable. The Kings of Braxton, Born Unto Trouble, Chapter 1. Braxton's Boys, 1. Nearly three miles to the north of the Ohio River, along the border of Ohio and West Virginia, sat the King family farm. A long dirt path led from Birch Road to the farmhouse. On either side of the dirt path, commonly referred to as King's Lane, sat large empty fields waiting to be plowed and planted. These fields were surrounded on three sides by woods of aspen, basswood, and pine trees that towered almost to the heavens. At the end of King's Lane sat a large two-story farmhouse. It was dirty white with light blue trim and a wraparound porch. It was 1902, still the beginning of a new century, and the sun was setting over the western tree line, casting a warm glow and long shadows over the farmland as Geoffrey King worked the field near the woods. He was a tall and broad man, wearing denim overalls that only partially concealed a sweat-covered undershirt. A brown, sweat-stained fedora sat atop his chiseled face. His jawline was strong, with a long beard that needed to be washed. Jeffrey was looking a bit ragged from all the years of fighting and protecting his land and the people of the nearby town of Braxton. The kings had watched over Braxton ever since they, along with three other families, founded it in 1699. Jeffrey normally wore his gun belt with custom-made revolvers nestled snugly in their stiff leather holsters. On this day, however, he was in a farming mindset and had left his belt and weapons sitting on a workbench in the woodshop. Jeffrey was holding the reins to the team of Canadian horses that helped him plow his fields. These four horses had been with the family for many years and had proven to be the most valuable animals on the farm. All four were sturdy. Three of them had light brown coats and raven black manes and tails, while the fourth one was black from head to tail. They moved in unison and created a thunderous thud as their wide hooves hit the dirt, kicking up dust with each step. Whoa, boys, Jeffrey called out as he pulled tight to the reins. The horses stopped reluctantly and seemed anxious to continue their task at hand. They whinnied and snorted as Martin Little, known simply as Little, approached Jeffrey from the woods. Little was a portly man in a nice but dusty suit. He was what people called high cotton, dressed too fancy. The two were not on friendly terms, and Jeffrey was tense and on guard as Little stopped a few feet away from him and his horses. "'What do you want, Little?' Jeffrey asked, knowing exactly what he wanted. Little was a crime boss from Charleston, West Virginia, to the south. 
He had tried to use Braxton as a midway point for his criminal empire that he was trying to expand to Cleveland. Jeffrey had a run-in with a few of Little's men a month back and was forced to take care of them permanently. Jeffrey and Little had numerous encounters in town before and it was coming to a head right there in the fading sunlight. Jeffrey took off his old dirt-covered fedora and wiped the sweat from his forehead. You can't stop me, King. I'm gonna do what I gotta do, Little said in a voice more suited for a woman. I'm not gonna let you use Braxton as your personal playground. I told your men that and they didn't believe me, Jeffrey said as he placed the fedora back on his head. He reached for his revolver, but remembered it was not where it should have been. Fate, perhaps. Little didn't appear to be armed, but with his kind, you can count on some sort of weapon being concealed. The sun was heading for the tree line, ready to lie down beyond the horizon, as Jeffrey's son Sam, who was named after Jeffrey's younger brother, ran through the partially plowed field toward his father, carrying a dead rabbit. Five-year-old Sam was eager to tell his father about his first kill. Sam was short and stout for his age, but had the heart of a leader already, and his father was teaching him the ways of the family, to help and protect those who couldn't do it for themselves. Sam lived to make his father proud, and he knew that his kill would be appreciated. Daddy! Daddy! Sam yelled as he was nearing his father. Jeffrey turned to look at his son running through the field toward him and gasped. He wanted to keep Sam as far away from Little as possible. There was no telling what the crime boss was capable of. Sam, no! Stay there, Jeffrey yelled in a desperate and cracking voice. Daddy, I got one! I got one, Daddy! Sam yelled with great excitement. Jeffrey was in the midst of what could very well be a hard-fought battle with Little, but he still found the pride to smile at his young son's first kill. Little, being the dirtbag he was, took advantage of Jeffrey's momentary distraction and pulled a shiny pistol from his jacket, pointed it at Jeffrey, and shot twice. The gunshots echoed sharply across the open farmland, stopping Sam in his tracks. The workhorses squealed and screamed in fear, reared up, and ran towards the house, still dragging the plow behind them. The smile on Jeffrey's face was torn away the instant one of the bullets struck him in the neck with such force that it blew his fedora off his head. The second bullet found his chest and hit hard enough to spin him around. Blood poured from the wounds as he slowly fell to his knees, keeping his eyes on his son. Jeffrey tried to yell for Sam, but he could only muster a loud gurgle as he fell to the ground, trying to grasp for his last breath. Sam dropped the rabbit carcass and ran as fast as he could, stumbling over the soft soil. He didn't know what else to do but to run to his father. Daddy, the young boy screamed through the fear. It was barely more than a high-pitched squeal, but 
It was all Sam could force out. He looked toward Little as he continued to run. Little pointed his gun at Sam and with a devious smirk, pulled the trigger twice. Click. Click. Sam ducked and slid to his father's side, hoping to dodge any bullets. Little, frustrated, pulled the trigger again, but again, the gun merely clicked. Sam wrapped his small arms around his father's limp neck, covering himself in blood while keeping an eye on the killer towering above him. Daddy! Sam screamed in terror. You got luck on your side, kid, Little said as he put his gun back in his jacket. You say anything, and I'll send you to meet your daddy again. Jane King, Jeffrey's wife, heard the gunshots and ran from the farmhouse across the field toward her husband and youngest son, holding up her long skirt and trying not to trip as she went. She was a slender woman with long black hair pulled back in a ponytail that swung wildly as she ran. Her oldest son, Neil, followed behind her, struggling to keep up. Neil was seven, slender like his mother, and tall for his age. Sam held tight to his father, and Little laughed as he kicked Sam in the face, tossing his little body like a rag doll. By the time Sam was able to regain himself and look up, his father's killer had vanished, leaving Sam with a bloodied lip. Sam screamed at the top of his small lungs as he scurried back to his father's side. His screams were crackling and high-pitched as he gripped his father's lifeless body. The blood dripping from Sam's mouth fell and mixed with his father's blood. Neil saw his father lying on the ground covered in blood and stopped in his tracks, frozen like a statue standing guard over an empty field. His face grew pale and tears built up, then fell like miniature waterfalls. He wanted to look away, but couldn't seem to move a muscle. Jane ran to her husband's body and fell to her knees, crying so hard that she couldn't catch her breath. The love of her life was gone, lying there in a field covered in his own blood. Sam let go of his father's neck and looked up at his mother. They shared a moment of silence as Jane struggled to breathe through her tears and the lump in her throat. Mommy! Sam cried out. Jane leaned over and grabbed the lifeless body of her husband, ignoring the cries of her son. She squeezed the body of her husband tightly. Her heart felt as if it had fallen out and settled on the ground beside her lifelong companion. It was as if the world had stopped and the pain of a thousand swords pierced her body all at once. An uncontrollable and unending agony she could not push aside, not even for the sake of her young children. She had watched her husband fight and bleed many times over the years, and she had known that this day would eventually come. She just wasn't expecting it so soon, and the anguish was more than she had ever imagined. Her shrieks and uncontrollable trembling scared her son even more than he already was. Sam sat on the ground silently, staring at his blood-soaked hands. 
He felt the slippery fluid beginning to dry and become sticky. He trembled as the tears continued to stream down his face. He couldn't believe that his father, the strongest and smartest man he knew, was lying motionless and pale, covered in blood and dirt, without a breath left in him. The young boy, now fatherless, leaned over and grabbed hold of his mother desperately. She was all he had left, and he looked to her for the strength that he needed. His grip was surprisingly strong and meaningful for a boy of his age, but Jane was too absorbed with her husband and her own grief to even notice him. Neil began to walk forward again slowly, staring at his father's body. He paused once again and turned toward the lane as he heard the clumping of heavy hoofs and the rattling of a large wagon. It was his uncle, Alfred Jensen. From the wagon, Alfred saw the family in the field and knew something was wrong. Although his sister was blocking his view, he knew that Jeffrey was in turmoil. Al, as he was known to family and friends, was thirty-one years old, but had lived a hard life, harder than most, and he looked ten years older. At the age of fifteen, he joined the army with Jeffrey's younger brother, Samuel, to fight in the Indian Wars out west. Al returned from the fighting with the body of Samuel and had lived at the edge of town ever since. His sister's family were the only people he had left in the world. Al jumped from his wagon and ran toward his sister, who was still struggling to breathe through the tears and screams. Al had a permanent limp from the wars and had struggled to run through the uneven field. As he ran past Neil, who was still in a daze and walking slowly, Al noticed that his brother-in-law was on the ground and no longer among the living. He stopped just behind his sister, looked down at the body, and knew there was no hope, no chance of saving him. All right, then, Al said in a deep and raspy voice. It was the type of voice that when you heard it, you knew this man had been through hell and back many times throughout his life, and you knew to listen to him. It was a very commanding voice. He reached down and peeled his sister from her husband's body. She didn't want to let go, but she couldn't fight her brother's strength. Al grabbed onto his sister, as her knees didn't have the strength to hold her up. It was like picking up a large sack of potatoes, and he struggled momentarily as he found his grip. Sam looked up at his uncle as if he could somehow help do something to bring his father back from the dead and make the pain go away. Al looked down at his nephew in agony, wishing he could wipe that look off the boy's face. Al knew death, knew the misery it caused, and how it could take an otherwise perfect day and turn it upside down, bringing it to a halt. Neil began to walk at a normal pace as Sam took his father's hands and crossed them over his chest, covering the gaping hole. It was all he could think to do, his way of saying goodbye. Sam stood and 
took a step back. He looked down and noticed his hands and clothes were covered in blood all the way down to his little boots. A strange silence filled the air momentarily as Jane stopped her screaming to take a deep breath. Neil put his hand on Sam's shoulder to let him know he was there, which gave Sam a little peace, but it didn't last long. Sam broke down and screamed at the top of his lungs, a cry to the heaven, a cry for help that echoed in the fading light of the otherwise calm and peaceful countryside. Al looked down at his nephews, knowing their lives had just changed and they would need comfort, but most importantly, they would need direction and guidance. Direction and guidance he knew he could give, but... He was not the person to give a lot of comfort. Jane would have to be strong now. Strong enough to play the role of both parents. All right, then, Al said again. Let's get y'all back in the house. He spoke with a sad but firm tone as he helped his sister stand on her own feet again. Jane looked at her brother and wiped the tears from her face with her bloodied hands, replacing tears with smears of dark red. Sam watched as his mother and Neil turned and began to walk back to the house. It looked so far to the young boy, and he dreaded crossing that distance himself. Jane slowly made her way across the field, slower than Sam had ever seen anyone walk, and she kept looking back at her dead husband, perhaps hoping for him to rise and run to her. Sam turned back for one last look at his father and noticed the fedora lying on the ground a few feet away. He reached down and picked it up, his blood-stained hand leaving a print of four fingers on the front of the brim. Sam stared at the worn hat for a moment and then glanced at his father as he placed it on his own head. It was too large for him, but that didn't matter to Sam. He turned and made his way back to the house, trying to keep the fedora from covering his eyes completely. Uncle Al stayed behind with the body and watched as his sister and nephews returned to the house. He looked around for any clues that would tell him what happened and who might be responsible. As he knelt down beside his brother-in-law, he noticed deeply set footprints. He followed them with his eyes and stood to get a better look at the trail. Al had learned how to track during the war, and he knew by the tracks that the man he was looking for was large and wore fancy shoes. He thought it odd that a man with fancy shoes would be walking around in a field. This had to be a personal issue for him, something big enough for him to risk getting his fancy shoes and no doubt equally fancy clothes dirty. Al returned to his wagon while the young brothers watched from the porch for a moment. He drove the team of horses through the field and stopped them near the body. After wrapping Jeffrey in a tarp, he carefully lifted his brother-in-law and laid him in the back of his wagon. 
The sun was sinking behind the trees, and a slight wind blew in from the west as Al returned to the farmhouse. 2. The haunting sounds of Johann Sebastian Bach echoed throughout the house from a new, crank-style Victor phonograph sitting atop a heavy cabinet between two large windows in the sitting room at the front of the house. Jane loved music, and Jeffrey had bought her the phonograph just a month or so ago. She would sit in front of it for hours, peacefully listening and knitting. The sitting room was large, with two sofas facing each other in the center of the room. In the middle of the sofas was a small coffee table, and on either side of the sofas were small end tables with oil lamps that were well used. Along the back wall was a large fireplace with bookshelves on either side. The room was open to the entrance of the house, creating a warm feeling the moment anyone walked into the home. Down the hall from the sitting room, Sam and Neil stood in the doorway to the kitchen and watched in horror as their mother scrubbed her hands and cried over a basin full of water. The kitchen was quite large and long. Along one side was the basin with counter space on either side, and a large window was above the basin. On the far wall, just under an open window, sat the wood stove used for cooking as well as heating. Along the wall opposite the basin were rows of shelves filled with sacks of flour, salt, sugar, and various other cooking goods, and sealed mason jars of fruits, veggies, herbs, and spices. There was a long table not far from the entrance, with six wooden chairs neatly pushed in, and clean plates and glasses set on it, ready for the next meal. The kitchen was dimly lit by candle flames dancing in the slight breeze that snuck in through the open window. Jane was frantically trying to wash the blood from her hands, as if she was washing away the memory of her husband. Sam had taken off his blood-soaked clothes and left them on the front porch. He stood in the doorway wearing only his underpants and waiting his turn at the basin as he held tight to his father's fedora. Neil stood next to Sam, trying to take in what was happening, not knowing exactly what his little brother had just witnessed. Jane scrubbed as hard as she could, and though her hands and arms were clean, in her mind they were still covered in the blood that she couldn't seem to remove. She deliriously mumbled to herself as her sons watched from the doorway, not knowing what to do. The wax from the candles had pooled on the counter, and the wind blowing into the kitchen brought a slight chill to the room that was felt mostly by the near-naked Sam, who was trembling. No, not now. Jeffrey, my baby. Why? God, why? Jane cried quietly through the tears and sniffles. She couldn't bear to think of her life or how she was going to go on without her loving husband. She had been with no other man ever, had felt for no man. She had been in love with Jeffrey since they were in grammar school. They had sat across the room from each other, but Jane spent most of her time staring at him 
and daydreaming about the life they could have together. She wanted nothing more than to be his wife. Everyone knew the kings, including her, but she didn't care about the fame, the stories, or the fighting for justice. She just loved Jeffrey for who he was. Not for the family he came from, or who he was meant to be as he grew up. However, she had always feared this day would come. Neil watched his mother as she became more erratic. He knew that he was now the man of the house, and he was afraid of what that might entail. A boy his age having such a responsibility seemed too much for him to fathom as he watched his mother in horror. His mind was going in too many different directions at once. He was sad and dismayed over the loss of his father. He was concerned for his mother and her well-being. He was protective of his younger brother. And he was afraid of what would become of his family in the future. Sam forced himself not to run to his mother's side. He knew, even at his age, that she needed to be alone. He watched her as she grew more and more erratic and uncontrolled. Clutching the fedora, he fiddled with its brim as he watched his mother hysterically wash herself. Tears streamed down his face as he continued to tremble, partly from being nearly naked and cold, but mostly just because he was scared. Sam was unable to watch his mother any longer. He put his father's fedora on and ran down the hall. His bare feet slapped the hard wood as he ran toward the back door, which opened to a grassy field and a wooded area thick with trees and vegetation of all sorts. A large creek passed through the property and emptied into a pond that was surrounded by large boulders, dense trees, and overgrowth. The pond sat a few hundred yards behind the farmhouse. Running through the dense vegetation, Sam was slapped repeatedly by limbs of young trees. He kept running, putting his head down to protect his face, ignoring the pain of running barefoot through the woods and the slapping of the branches. He kept running until he reached the pond. A raccoon ran off as he removed the fedora and jumped into the cool water and splashed about, trying to wash his father's blood from his body. The moonlight shone on the pool as it began to run red, and Sam glanced skyward to see if he could find his father amid the large field of stars that stretched across the sky. The cloudless sky seemed endless to Sam as he searched the heavens for his father's star, which showed itself as a bright white streak that shot across his field of view. The only sound was the running water and a few critters rustling through the woods as Sam let out a loud sigh. When Al walked up on the front porch, he noticed the pile of bloody clothes and lowered his head at the sight. The front door squeaked as he slowly opened it and entered the dark, sorrow-filled home. The fireplace crackled loudly in the sitting room as he passed by on his way to Neil, who remained in the doorway to the kitchen. Neil looked at Al with pathetic, sad eyes which hit Al hard, like a knife in the heart. His sister was still washing almost 
ritualistically, and she was mumbling incoherently, almost like a sad and pathetic hymn that was out of tune with the music still echoing from the phonograph in the sitting room. Where's your brother? Al asked of Neil without taking his eyes off his sister. Neil said nothing. He merely pointed to the back door. You go upstairs now, Al said. Get ready for bed. Neil turned and looked to the stairs, then turned back to his mother. Gone now, Al said sternly before he walked into the kitchen. Neil turned and slowly walked upstairs. They cracked as he stepped on each one with his hardy boots. Al slowly walked closer to his sister, not wanting to startle her, and placed his hands lightly on her shoulders. She flinched and screamed. No! she yelled as she continued to scrub her hands and arms. Al stood there for a moment, watching his sister madly mumbling. He reached out his hand again. Sis, he said quietly. Leave me alone, Alfred, Jane mumbled through her tears. We must be at none of your damn wisdom now, Alfred, Jane said sharply as she turned to her brother. I can't get it off. She held out her hands, which were clean. I can't get him off of me, she whined as she turned back to the basin. I love you, Jane. Al said as he gently placed his hand on Jane's shoulder. This time, Jane let his hand rest on her without objection. It was like she didn't even notice her older brother was still in the room. Her tormented weeping pulled tears from Al. He wanted nothing more than to help his sister, but he couldn't find the words. Al, the man who was never at a loss for words, now was. He hung his head in shame and left the kitchen. At the back door, Al reached for a small jacket that was hanging on a crooked nail just to the right of the door. With a loud sigh and a last look toward the kitchen, he walked out and let the door shut behind him with a loud thud that startled Jane. She stayed hunched over the basin and wept uncontrollably as the music stopped. Then. She ran into the phonograph and placed the needle at the beginning of the record. When she looked down at her hand, in her mind she still saw her husband's blood. She returned to the kitchen basin to wash again. 3. Al knew right where to go. The creek was Sam's special spot, a place he came to every time he needed to be left alone. It was his own place, where not too many people went. Even though it was a well-known pond along with the family called King's Creek. Al walked out of the dense woods and emerged on the bank of the small pond. He saw his young nephew sitting on a large rock near the edge of the cool water, shivering. He was holding Jeffrey's fedora and staring at the water. Al paused a moment and examined his nephew. The sight of young Sam made Al's heart ache, but he held his feelings inside and walked over to him. He placed the small jacket over the boy's shivering shoulders and took a seat next to him. Sam handed the fedora to Al with sad eyes. 
Hal took the hat and held it for a moment. That's yours now, Sam. Keep it safe, Hal said quietly as he returned it to his nephew. There's blood on it, Sam said in a shaky voice, rubbing his fingers over the bloody handprint he'd left when he picked it up in the field. Let it remind you of how much your father loved you. Al had seen countless men die, many of them at his own hands, but he couldn't imagine what it was like for a five-year-old to see his father killed in such a way. Why did this happen, Uncle Al? Sam asked, still staring at the bloodstain. His tone was sorrowful and morose far beyond what any child should ever have to feel. Why did that man kill my daddy? Al wrapped his arms around Sam's shoulders. He didn't know what to say. There was no good response to the question, and Al had spent most of his life hiding his feelings, so he didn't know how to help Sam. The wind picked up slightly, pushing leaves along the ground as the moon crept over the treetops. I don't have the answers for you, Sammy. I wish I did. I want to kill that high-cotton son of a bitch, Sam said quietly, almost as if he was embarrassed by what he was saying. So do I, Sammy. So do I. Al paused when he realized that Sam had just called the killer high-cotton. Did you see the man? Al asked. Yes, sir, I did. It was that Jasper Daddy was always yelling at. Knowing the identity of the killer made Al smile inside. He knew the man Sam was talking about, and he also knew that now there would be justice for the slaying of his brother-in-law. 4. Neil and Sam shared a small room at the top of the stairs. There was a bed on each side of the room and a large window along the far wall that faced the front of the house, giving a perfect view of the fields and woods in the distance. Next to the door was a small dresser with an oil lamp, and the floor was littered with clothes and muddy boots. Neil sat quietly on the edge of his bed. He had removed his clothes and was wearing only his underpants and a dirty white shirt. He stared out the window, waiting for Uncle Al to return with Sam. The hunting sound of his mother's weeping had stopped, and he was beginning to feel like he was all alone. He stood slowly and walked out of the room and down the short hall to the top of the steps. The staircase was narrow and steep. From the top, he could hear the sad sound of Come Sweet Death echoing through the house. Neil got to the kitchen doorway only seconds before Al and Sam walked through the back door. Then he saw his mother lying on the floor. Al walked over to Neil with Sam by his side. You boys go upstairs and get some sleep, Al said quietly. Sam and Neil stared at their mother lying in the middle of the kitchen. The music continued to echo eerily throughout the house as Al glanced in the kitchen and saw his sister. 
What about Mommy? Neil asked tiredly. I'll take care of her. Now off you go, both of yous. The boys did as they were told, and Al turned to the kitchen. He froze when he noticed the stream of blood was trickling away from Jane. Taking a deep breath, he moved slowly to his sister and knelt down beside her. He looked down and saw the open veins and sharp knife in her cold, pale hand. Al wept quietly for his sister and for the boys who were now left without parents. He was now the last of his family, having lost his wife and children long ago to sickness. Al took a moment to compose himself before he lifted her limp body and carried it outside, where he placed her in the wagon next to her husband. He covered her gently before falling to his knees, weak with grief. He wept for his sister loud enough to draw the attention of the boys, and they watched from their second-story window as Al wailed with an uncontrollable weeping like he had never wept before. Then he looked to the heavens and howled in anguish. It was a pain he had never before felt in all his experience with death, a tortured agony that had been waiting to unleash itself for years. At that moment, he wept not only for his sister and her husband, but also for Neil and Sam, for his wife and his young daughters, and for the friends he had lost in the war many years ago. In that moment, Al wept for every soul who had ever been lost, every child who had been orphaned, every mother and father who had ever lost a child, and for every man and woman who had lost the love of their life. The misery Al felt weakened him, and he fell to the ground, burying his face in his hands. Sam's eyes were wide, and tears streamed down his face as he grabbed his brother's hand tightly. What now, Neil? Sam asked, wiping the tears with his free hand. Revenge, little brother. Revenge, Neil said coldly. But Daddy always said, Go to bed, Sammy, Neil sniffled. Daddy's not here anymore. And neither is Mommy. His voice cracked. Neil climbed into bed and drifted off to sleep while Sam stood at the window, staring at the tarp-covered bodies. Perhaps he expected them to rise and get on with their lives, as if it had all been a big mistake. Thank you for listening to Chapter 1. Join me next week, when we'll begin Chapter 2, Laid to Rest. If you like what you're hearing... You can hop on over to Amazon.com and pick up a copy for yourself, either as an ebook or a paperback version.